Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Is the rabbit with fangs the most horrifying thing the wasteland has to offer? Are goats just full of strings? And what will it cost Hakram to trust Catherine so completely? An arm and a leg, and a hand, and an arm, and a hand. What Foundling does isn't thinking outside the box, so much as stealing the box and hitting her opponents with it until they stop moving. Extract from A Commentary on the Uncivil Wars by Juniper of the Red Moon Clan. That quotable writer is, of course, the real crux of the issue today. We resume where we left last time, Catherine having successfully escaped the fortress that would have protected her, and Juniper successfully having taken the fortress that would have stopped her. And by this reversal, now Catherine is in a very, very bad position with a worse army, worse numbers, possibly worse supplies, could go either way, and certainly worse positioning than the greatest mind the War College ever has, or, let's be honest, will turn out. Through this chapter, Catherine laments. She has a heart-to-heart with an unnamed orc, Unnamed here. We find out later it's Hakram. Then, after an officer's meeting, she comes up with an idea. An awful idea. A wonderful, awful idea. And after that, it's just a magical horseplay. Or, pardon, goat play. I I do love me some magical goat play. This, this chapter is a, a very fun one for a lot of reasons. We see the beginning of... Maybe not the beginning, but we see a, a major pivot in... Uh, a very important relationship, and we see the setup for the end of the game, the five-way melee. We see the basis for a lot of... We see the basis for a chunk of Kat's reputation going forward in her uh, brilliant plan at the end here. Uh, It's just all around a great chapter for building up to things that happen much later in the series, and also just for being, frankly, a lot of fun to read. Before we dive into that chapter, however, 
Our epigraph today was written to us by our beloved Juniper of the Red Moon Clan, who later writes a commentary on the uncivil wars, whatever those may be. This is the first time we see that Juniper is of continued relevance in the story, or at the very least, in the world of the story. Right now, for all we know, she could be the monster of the week or the boss of this level. And much like Goma in Ocarina of Time, never be seen again. Yeah, I, I appreciate that because we also we get a couple other characters who are around in the story writing later on. We get we get excerpts in the form of the epigraphs. And so it, it's a nice way to summarize what's going on in a sort of history uh, while also hinting at the fate of those characters in a, an interesting way. And also they are... Those, that kind of thing tend to be from people who know Kat pretty well, so we get some uh, pretty accurate summaries of her character, like this one. Well, I wouldn't go so far as to slander her by insinuating she stops hitting her opponents after they stop moving. <laughs> but Juniper, we already know, is the best at the college in this time. Sure, she goes on to something, but we know she's the best now. What I'm curious about is her troop. I assume Juniper has more or less the same access to training. Her troops have more or less the same requirements in the college and normal weeks when they're not getting killed. But Pickler, who we know at this point, proves herself to be the greatest engineering mind, full stop, notes while looking at the tunnels dug by First Company to get into the tunnels dug by Fox Company, however they found out about them, that... They are hurried work, but still stable. Juniper makes up for limited sapper assets by quality. I'm curious, why are Juniper's sappers so good? Why why does she have good sappers, comparatively? This is clearly a comparative statement. I can, I can see a couple avenues for this. One is she demands excellence. It's Juniper. Uh, I, I just have a vision of First Company having, you know much less recreation time than the other companies and the drills being much harsher and the things that they train for being more applicable than other companies because the training is designed by Juniper, the extra training. Um, so there could be that side of things that it's just Juniper is Juniper's better and that's the end of it. Um, the other side of things, and this is just purely a guess, but it feels like it could be right, when you are assigned to a company, there's a very real chance that there's some kind of draft mechanic or placement mechanic based on how well you do in your classes. So there's an incentive to do well in classes because then you end up in first company instead of rat company, perhaps. That's very fair. I have a theory myself now that you've spoken long enough for me to think. Okay. People die in these games. Do you think first company people die a lot more, or do rat company people die a lot more? That's fair. It <laughs> I, it doesn't sound like people die that often that we're explicitly told Does it though? <laughs> that we see deaths on screen. <laughs> when we see the ballista later, remind me to make note of it. Yeah, but that doesn't hit anybody. It's fine. But it's meant to. Uh, yeah. Speaking of people dying, Catherine orders those tunnels to be collapsed. She doesn't think she could pull off an assault through them on Fox Company's, now First Company's, fortifications, which is correct. Juniper knows about them. And, and, but also, Juniper could 
come back through them, and she would make it work somehow. However, the reasoning Catherine gives for her assault on Juniper, theoretical, not working, is that Juniper would just drop a handful of smokers in the tunnels when she caught sight of incoming rat company, and let us choke our lungs out in the dark before sweeping up whoever was still standing. Well, crawling. Smokers are, in these games, not their toxic counterparts in the IRL, but in a contained tunnel like that, what are the odds you think that they take out a few people? Just, you know, a little asphyxiation to spice things up. No one can scry it anyway. Yeah, it seems like that's the kind of thing that any competent commander would be aware of and thus not try, so you don't have to test it. Because pulling that trigger as the defender would be pretty rough, knowing that you are definitely killing people by doing it. I, I, can't, I can't imagine a situation where everybody survives being in a tunnel with smokers. Yeah, and Juniper's not just going to kill her opponents. Remind me to talk about this again when the ballista fires. Um, <laughs> however, speaking of nasty things, this chapter is our first chance to see the nightmare that is not just the Prey Sea, but Prey's. Yeah, it's called the Wasteland. Yeah, there's some desert stuff. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. But when Catherine goes off by herself to pout, she thinks about how her sexy, sexy Lieutenant Ratface had informed her that pretty much everything out in the wasteland was either poisonous or, very specifically, out to eat your liver and possibly your soul. Because everyone who took over the tower let out the experiments of the last tyrant into the wild. And that's great. That's so praised. That's wonderful. But I'm wondering what precipitated the tradition. Yeah, I'm sure the vast majority of Dread Tyrants, being the comic book mad villain that they are, have that mad scientist streak and make horrible, horrible monsters. But the tower is full of terrible, unspeakable, nightmarish things. Why do they dump them? Why don't they keep them and in their hubris think they'll be able to control them or what have you? Well, let's say you just took the tower and you go in and you're touring your new palace slash home slash seat of your government. Yeah, I've imagined this many times in detail. Yeah. Go on. And you open up the experiment room and there's, you know, a small colony of giraffes, except their tongues are covered with fish lips that are constantly whispering secrets. You know, normal crazy stuff. Kind of tame, but go on. Uh, yeah, I mean, tame, but annoying, unpleasant. And you can, you know, keep them, but then you have to feed these things. You could kill them and waste secret whispering giraffes. No, thank you. Or you could release them. On top of that, think about how much room a colony of fish-lipped giraffes would take up. That's a lot of space. What if you need that space for your man-eating tapirs or whatever you're coming up with? You set them Ooh, loose. Oh, that one's in, a good idea. You set them loose in the wasteland. They terrorize people they let people remember how powerful the tower is that the cast-offs are such horrific things and you don't have to deal with them yourself anymore it's clean it's easy that makes so much sense and then in the wild if they're worthwhile they'll be able to carve out their own niche and if not some other iron will sharpen itself against them very good perfect hey i have a question uh do you think just on balance here the goats and gazelle that are caught later are Poisonous, liver-eating, or soul-devouring? Actually, it's really funny. The goats are none of the above. Gazelles, obviously, all of the above. The goats are fainting goats, 
but instead of fainting, they just explode. Catherine ah. doesn't actually rig up the explosives with extra power. It's just the natural goat explosive. Cat's famous, like in the infamous start to Cat's willingness to do utterly out of the box dangerous things is actually just happenstance that is the result of the wasteland being terrible. I love it. I've complained a few times in this series of engagements that Catherine makes an assumption and runs with it as though it is true without mm-hmm. even a even us having confirmation in the end just seems likely or what have you. I admit right here that, of course, she's right about this. However, she has no evidence. She, in, in lamenting her position, she acknowledges that Juniper is holed up in the fortress, quote, with only token casualties. She can't know that. Of course, she's right. But she doesn't know Juniper as well as we do yet. And Juniper crawled through the tunnels with her troops into the middle of an enemy camp. Whatever disarray it was thrown into, whatever sapper downgrade to melee combat there was, if I popped out of a hole in the midst of a bunch of nasty little boys, I would still get my teeth kicked in a little bit, right? Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Keeping in mind that Juniper's assault was probably much more carefully planned than just popping out of the hole. Because I think later on, they clarify that she, or Kat clarifies that what happened in actuality is that Juniper and her soldiers came out and did the decapitation method. Like, they just ambushed uh, Snatcher and his officers. So that could have been very, very quick and involved very few casualties if you don't actually have to fight that much you just take on the six people or whatever it is and win that way fair but still snatcher sees in the dark and actually juniper did not send herself she knows better she so there are no big orcs juniper is a very capable frontliner but that would be the worst choice moving on the important thing is catherine doesn't know that her numbers are necessarily worse than juniper is abysmal as they may be yeah, Kat starts to tally up where things are. Juniper's only taken token casualties, I guess. Has a siege weapon. True. Kat then looks at her side and realizes that she's down in the 50s when it, came to, when it comes to effective fighting force. And nearly half of her cadets are sappers, who aren't great in melee. And, you know, on top of the siege weapon, higher numbers, and better ground, and a better... Uh, captain and all of these things and soldiers who are better trained yada 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 it is important to remember that it's okay cat don't worry juniper also has fortifications designed by the college's best fortification engineer so really things aren't that bad it should never have gotten this far catherine had a plan she would betray morak to aisha betray aisha to snatcher betray snatcher and use his fortifications against juniper That plan was an elegant thing when they started out the melee. And perhaps the central (laughs) thesis of this work is that the elegant, the beautiful, die wretched deaths in this world, with the exception of Cordelia Hassenbach. And the Kingfisher Prince. Well, I have different adjectives I'd like to use about him. (laughs) Fair, fair, fair. It's a... Kat is very proud of that plan here, even after it failed predictably even after she did exactly what she was warned against by Black in creating a plan that required each previous step to work perfectly for the next step to function at all. 
Uh, but sure, Kat. It was elegant at the start. It looked great on paper. So, <laughs> Catherine's in a rough place, is the ultimate summary. Right. And she knows it. She says, gods, I was tired. On day three of a children's deadly war game. I mean... War, poor Catherine. She's, she's pretty young at this point, right? I mean, late, late teens? Our precious baby. Right. I'm looking back to when I was a teenager. Three days? I don't think there was anything that could happen over the course of three days that would see me actually that tired. You're invincible as a teenager. Nothing can tire you out. And Kat's in great shape, as she talks about later. Next chapter, I believe. Captain trained her. Why is being a teenager so terrible when it's so great? Honestly, though. Oh, because you aren't great at thinking ahead. You know, like where Kat says that she's tired and out of ideas to, against, to use against a captain who was... Be- <clears throat> tired and out of ideas to use against a captain who it was becoming obvious was just better at legion tactics than i was becoming cat becoming at this point you you made it to now and it's only just now becoming obvious that juniper is better than you at all of this stuff uh (laughs) so you know the flip side of being a teenager you look at somebody who's just better than you and it takes a couple days of her running circles around you before you say hmm maybe she's better than me Catherine really enjoys stating the obvious in this paragraph, in fact. But the next obvious may be something that hasn't been stated before, unlike the universal acknowledgement of Uniper's glories. She says, Chaos was something I was good at dealing with. Rolling with the punches was a skill I'd perfected through my years in the pit, and it served me well when things went out of control. She's talking about the pre-book six Catherine Foundling method. Is this our first open acknowledgement? I believe it may be. I think she probably... I I feel like she has said something similar to this, but not in as many words before. Something about something about uh, adapting... Uh, uh, maybe you're right. Maybe this is the first time she explicitly spells it all out. Either way, it is, it is nice when Kat can just sit down and say, here's what I'm very good at, and be completely right. Catherine's often right. You, on the other hand, may have made a terrible mistake. Oh? You have this theory that names are perhaps an alien entity. Alien in the sense of outside of their mantle bearer. That the squire, once things works towards things, has a will beyond Catherine. That it is defined not by Catherine after she achieves it, but by itself more than anything else. It seemed to make sense so far, but I have proof that names are actually entirely molded and entirely formed out of their bearer. Okay, let's hear it. In Catherine's own words. My name was a recalcitrant little brat. (laughs) That's your... Speaking... (laughs) I I love it. Speaking of those that are neither recalcitrant nor little... We we get a, a, a scene here that's just great for establishing uh, a very, very important relationship, sort of hinted at at the the top of this episode. Um, But Kat lies down in the woods by herself. In her thinking pose. In her thinking pose, which I believe is just on her back, kind of sprawled. Um, (laughs) And Hockram... I share a trait with Catherine. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And Hockram discovers her, and they... 
have a, a little chat where a couple very important things come up. One of the early ones, though, is just cute and fun, and it, it's a joy to read with the knowledge of the rest of the, the series here. Uh, Kat says that, uh, she says, I liked Hawkram, probably the most out of all of my officers. They're besties already, and it's great. I love both of them. I love them together. They're, they're the best. And I hope they stay friends forever. <sighs> me too. And they, the, they actually do. There's just yeah, one yeah, yeah. bad period. It's okay. <laughs> Everyone, don't panic. There's a rough patch, which, fair, for a friendship that lasts a lifetime. Fair. Um, but uh, there's the, the conversation goes on with Kat expressing doubts in herself and in her plan, and Hawker more or less just saying, now nah, you came up with this plan, it's going to work, or, you know, if it doesn't, you know, we made it this far, that's fantastic, you're doing great. Like, just being an absolute fella to, to Catherine. And he asks a question about some of her, her motivation and Kat realizes that the question isn't judgmental. It's not confrontational. It's not him complaining. He's literally just curious because he, as Kat says, implicitly trusts that Kat had a good reason for what she'd done. And we see the, the beginning here of what becomes literally a defining trait for Hawkram, his unimpeachable trust in Kat uh, starting to get established even after they've known each other for a handful of days and two battles. So it's, we're seeing some really, really foundational stuff develop here. Some things that kind of underpin massive amounts of plot movement and character developments. The foundation's getting established right here in this <laughs> behind this bush near a war camp. And not only does he work so hard and swiftly to build this foundation of trust with Catherine, but he also is wholly willing to just accept the nonsenses inherent to the life of a named, even mediated through Catherine. When he asks why she took the chance, and her reply is, we win this and I'll get command of the 15th Legion, I confessed quietly. He did not point out that there was no 15th Legion currently in existence, or even a 14th for that matter. I was grateful for it. And if you lose, Hawker masked instead. Eris gets it, I replied. She complains about how unfair it is, and his reply? That's how they do things, Callow. She says the most bonkers things out there. It, it's practically like claiming that, oh yeah, if I do well in these war games at West Point, I don't know what they do out there, they're just going to make me general of the subterranean anti-magma creature forces. Otherwise, they'll give it to Paris Hilton. Like, Nice. Thank you. <laughs> Eris is basically the Paris Hilton of this. I think you'll yeah. see the parallels more and more as we can continue. I, I think all of our listeners are right on board with you there. I think that's, pretty, I think that's a pretty blatant one-to-one on EE's part. I really wish I knew more about Paris Hilton right Honestly, now. Honestly, I know. I was doing the same thing. <laughs> she carried a dog at one point, I think. Uh-huh. Some, I think something... she had a TV show. Hotels? Ooh, hotels. Uh-huh. And and Eris ends up having a lot of real estate. Mm-hmm. A city. Um, um, Unnatural amounts so, of money. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so gravity pulls rocks down hills. That's your segue. Take it or leave it. Kat asks Hawkram if he ever wanted to change the world. And he laughs before answering in the negative. 
by means of an allusion to a free city's myth, uh, he says, the world's always changing, Kala. We roll the boulder up the mountain until it falls down the slope, and then we start again. And I don't know. It's interesting to me that there's uh, that a, frankly, kind of minor myth from the free cities has made its way into praise idioms like that, that it's just sort of there and he's he just draws on that as the answer to a question like this they must uh, they've got a, a pretty powerful culture down there i guess you have to understand that the meatsons actually their entire mythology was just renamed free cities oh, myths so gotcha 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 that makes sense now i do really appreciate though that his rosiest view of the world is that if you're lucky the boulder doesn't crush anything you care for on the way down and that's all that you can hope for yeah, Kat even calls him on that and says, that's the best we can get. And his response is, for people like me, yeah, it is. And he says, you're not like me, Callow. And, you know, he says, you know, it goes into something about optimism. Also, she has a name, but it's great. It's got to because... be the key part. <laughs> Despite him not mentioning it or even alluding to it. Yeah, that's the key here. Although, to be fair, his, you seem to think you can fix this mess, is actually the most important part because i think arguably that's why she has a name uh but you know he says that she can change the world but he can't and it's important to note for now uh his place in the world is going to change drastically over the coming years he's going to reach a point where he can't personally change the world but he uh he definitely helps somebody else do it and then he moves on to a different role that gives him the power to change the world and he wields that power pretty directly so you know it's it's nice he's at this point in his life eh, it's i can't change the world i'm not that kind of person oh well and uh end of story hawkram very different person <clears throat> and uh he ends this whole thing by saying i don't know if anyone can change the world but i'd like to see you try to catherine and this is such an exciting little speech from him such an exciting line to really set up the i'll be there i i want to be there with you as you do these impossible things you're talking about it's it's i think this is a very foundational building block in becoming the adjutants it, it, it's like it's just right there it's 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 so good it may not be nomogenesis but it's the seed thereof and more importantly it's amicogenesis they're friends their best and I love them. But our best friend is doing just fine. Uh, My boy! <laughs> the uh, Catherine, not Callow any longer, she tells Hockram, calls an officer's meeting and gets everybody involved, um, lieutenants and sergeants and herself. And uh, we have Robert here, who is chewing on something throughout all the reports. And Cat assumes that means he's fine. And yeah, Kat, he's doing fine. You're in a hopeless situation where the end result can only be chaos. Of course he's fine. This is his ideal living scenario. Like, there is nothing that would make him happier than drowning and with chaos on the horizon and nothing but destruction as, as the, not even a solution, as the natural consequence. This is Robert's home. You say with chaos on the horizon, but... Everything seems to have added up to a long and boring siege. Yeah, and there's some discussion about starving out Juniper and you know whether or not that'd be possible. But Kat does mention that they have enough food, enough rations for four more days. Uh, well, 
more actually, considering we weren't at full strength, she says. But I, I got to thinking, four days is that's after taking all of Morok's and Aisha's rations, despite Morok not using any of his likely, maybe, you know, the first half day and Aisha only using a slightly more than that. That that's three companies worth and it's going to last at a handful of days. They really I think this is uh, maybe another instance of Eris's hand being on the scales. Uh, this They wanted, they here being the organizers, the administration, wanted this to be a battle, a five-way melee, as it's called, not a uh, a protracted war, not a not a, uh, a campaign in the wilds or anything like that. Next to no supplies in the wasteland, where forage is, uh, I think, probably pretty difficult, means that they are wanting the the companies to fight each other and fight each other quickly. They wanted a battle, a pitched battle, perhaps, which, you know, makes perfect sense if you're trying to make sure that one specific side loses. Cat's troops are explicitly the second worst when it comes to just fighting, uh, you know, only beating out Snatchers. And being, you know, in a strict five-way battle in one space there's a lot more room for chaos to make sure that she can't win. There's a lot more room for, you know, um, fatal error, chaos, so she can't win. <laughs> right. Uh, it, it's it's more about making sure that there's more chances for the individual powerful person to get ganged up on by a large number of people, where she doesn't have any room to be tricky. I don't know. I I just I feel like with I feel like it would make sense if they wanted this to be a long drawn out thing where one person could conceivably come up with a um, elegant plan that sees her winning individual battles one after another, you know, where that'd be easier to do, they would have given the the companies rations to last that long, and they explicitly did not. This this just feels like a, another slight, admittedly, stacking of the deck against Cap. I agree entirely, but I'm curious with her reasoning as she goes on to think about this. Because she considers starving Juniper out of the fortifications, or rather, because she had considered trying to starve Juniper out of the fortifications, given that there was no time limit in this melee, answering previous considerations we'd had. But, says Catherine, we'd come to a head long before that. Why do they have to come to a head long before that? If she thinks they could starve her out of the fortifications, what's going to force an engagement? Or does she truly not believe they could withstand harrying forays from the fort, which given Juniper would be sending them is correct. But again, how does she know? So the simplest answer here is long before rationing became such a concern that Juniper's soldiers would be at less than peak fighting shape, Juniper would force a battle. Um, and I think... Kat More or less on her terms. Right, exactly. Juniper would see, oh, I'm being besieged here rather than assaulted time to abandon the fortifications or use the fortifications as the launching point for an assault a sallying operation you don't she wouldn't sit there and hope oh man i i hope we win somehow while my my soldiers are starving like she wouldn't let it get to that and it is obscenely hard to fully besiege a place in such a way that it can't forage and i know we just talked about how foraging isn't possible really but raids on cat's supplies even i don't know cat has 50 soldiers <laughs> she can't even surround the camp with a, a single line of people you know like a, a a single file circle juniper could easily break out at any point and 
if Cat tried to per- completely trap Juniper within, then it would be very easy for Juniper to launch an attack on a very small number of Cat's soldiers and sort of uh, divide and conquer her way to victory that way. So I think it just boils down to there's no scenario in which Juniper lets herself get starved out. There's no scenario in which her opponent stops being Juniper, so... Right, exactly. <laughs> the forging's not entirely impossible, or rather hunting isn't. Catherine sends out hunting parties with the Dawn, and Pickler asks why. And, uh, you know, side note, we get a little finger clenching, so adding to the total, we're at nine. Um, Kat says that she wants to chop down some trees to get some carts, which is a great way to end the scene, since this is a scene end. Uh, it's very, I don't know, heist movie-esque. She says something that is not the full truth, doesn't actually reveal anything, and is more or less meaningless on its own. And then we cut to the next day, where Kat's got three goats, an antelope, and a rabbit with horns. Which, uh, you know, it's a pile of dead wildlife, pleases Robber to no end. I don't know where this is going, Robber announced cheerfully. But the fact that step one involves slaughtering the local wildlife has filled me with great expectations. Sir, I know that orcs and goblins are only spiritual cousins in their subjugation by the empire and that cat herself is only half orc but robber's full trust in her this full respect which we will see shortly entirely rewarded you spent three minutes and 34.2 seconds waxing eloquent about hakram's deep and nascent but earnest bond with catherine and this chapter also shows us the actual growth of the root of robbers and thus all nasty little boys, undying loyalty to the future Black Queen. They ask nothing but chaos and atrocity, which Catherine lets drip from her fingers like like rubies before piglets. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, it it's it's great. Robert Robert starts to see what Cat can do for him, and the answer is exactly what he wants. And, as I said, atrocity drips from Catherine's fingers, or perhaps is channeled through her hand, as she immediately starts to desecrate the corpses. Yeah, and she's using her name, of course, to do necromancy again. And we get a little bit more insight into, I want to say name power in general, but I, all we can truly say is that we're getting a little more insight into how Cat's name works. Um, I'll just read this bit here. Uh, she says... This, which is reaching into her name itself for power, this was different in nature to tapping into one of my aspects, where I let the power flow through me and harnessed it for my own purposes. I was submerging myself into my role, reaching for those cool depths I'd touched only twice before. And I thought this was really interesting because, for me, I've conceptualized aspects more as being these firm tools in a toolbox. You have learn, which lets you learn. You have... the Cut, which lets you cut. You know, they, they can be flexible in what they do or in how they're used, but they are inflexible in what they are. And so we get Kat saying that aspects are a power that you draw on and then you use that power how you need to, whereas the role itself, the raw power at the core of it all, is sort of, um, I don't know, a more general power i guess something that here cat is using for a specific purpose because that's 
what she needs it for. So the, the distinction between aspects and the general role power, I don't know, don't seem to be as firm as I would have thought before. Um, since here we've got the role being just, I touch this and it's this big, powerful force that I kind of just guide into a specific thing I need done, whereas the aspects are a, a flow of power that I that I hear Pat harnesses. I just, I've, I don't know. The, the description of the aspects here is, is just different than how I had them, I don't know, conceptualized prior to this. So I, I don't know if you feel the same way or if this is lined up with your expectations, this, this little uh, chunk here. I'm inclined to adopt this outlined metaphysic as my prevailing theory going forward. It's much like separating the role itself as a potential agent from the enrolled. Separating aspects from, I suppose, the role. Or allowing the aspects to be... I think you've given us an interesting framework. Let's test it until it collapses. Yeah, I, I, this, this discussion, this analysis of where exactly the borders are between name and named and aspects is so interesting on a reread where by the end of the book, we, by the end of the series, we kind of had this feel for what names are, but seeing some of the early, the specifics laid out early like this is, it's interesting. I'm, I'm really excited as we get into perspectives from more named characters and as we get more explicit instruction from black or explicit descriptions from cat and I'm, this is great no it is worth noting that this could be a an instance of early installment weirdness and the yonder rewrite will get rid of that <laughs> we'll see after this book yeah for sure i that'll that'll definitely be very interesting i agree um one other thing that's in here uh, related directly to name lore is that Kat refers to the power of her name as a coldness unnatural to creation. I have to say, named power being unnatural is definitely an, another interesting take here. It's obviously separate, I guess, external, but unnatural feels like a word for something that comes from the same source as creation itself. Uh, and is now in so many ways like names come from ruts in the form of stories being worn into creation itself. They are intertwined with the fabric of creation. And yet here we have it being an unnatural power. You make a very good point here, and I don't mean to simply discard it. However, in the Christian New Testament, yeah, you can tell it's already going to be good. Uh, <laughs> The Apostle St. Paul of Tarsus writes in the epistle, 1 Corinthians, in the 11th chapter, 14th verse, quote, Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? That's the New International Version. The King James Version, which is the fancy-sounding one that people like quoting a lot, you have... Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? Outside of cases of alopecia or male pattern baldness, men having long hair is in fact an extremely natural occurrence. Here the word nature is used in a sense of, well, depending which biblical scholar you ask, 
perhaps a sense of decency or morality, possibly a sense of custom, but not actually, it's not something that the universe is set up to do. Similarly, undead by Callowing custom and Callowing morality don't appear, but I think Catherine's just being biblical in her speech. And this is my favorite entirely on-topic tangent of the chapter. <laughs> A tangent that resolves itself with cats just being biblical. Got it. She resurrects the goats, and they're going to hack them full of explosives and send them at the fortress. Like you, like you do. And Robert has a convulsive fit of laughter. He acknowledges that they are undead suicide goats. And note, for the record, I don't care whether we lose this one anymore. This is already a victory in every way that matters. And Robert is just talking about the moral victory, the natural victory. No, that's not going to work. The aesthetic victory of undead suicide goats. But he speaks to a deeper truth as well. This is a victory in every way that matters because Catherine has, whether or not she wins the 15th Legion, which she will, she has won the goblin, or at the very least the goblins of the 15th and later the army of Callow for all time. Goblin loyalty is never something Catherine must doubt. She doesn't own the goblins, and obviously right. the matrons prove a whole thing, but that's not a doubt of goblin loyalty. That's They are not loyal to her, but her loyal goblins are loyal because they're yeah, and aim-recognized game. Exactly. <laughs> and lest you, dear listener, be concerned that this is just an edge case where Robert's special and he's the only one who fully un- rep- fully understands and respects what she's doing here. The very next paragraph has her, Catherine, basically just ignoring Robert for now because she doesn't want to encourage him and turning to Pickler, who is also somewhere between appalled and impressed. Also impressed. I don't think Robert's appalled. I don't think anything can appall him. And <laughs> Kat says... I had a feeling this was not the last time in my career a subordinate was going to be looking at me this way. Very prescient. Very correct. You're going to spend a lot of time with your subordinates being somewhere between appalled and impressed with you. And her enemies. With and everybody. perhaps creation itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, uh, following this, we get a little bit of back and forth about the uh, how to use the goats and what this will mean for the battle and how that'll move forward. And... This is, of course, interrupted with Robber poking the goat and it bothering Cat a little bit because she can necromantically feel that. And so he asks if they can name the goats, which she immediately denies. Uh, and <laughs> Robert responds with just a wonderful line. He says, after after Cat says denied to the request for permission, his immediate response is, both Morok's Revenge and I are very disappointed in your decision, Captain. It's... <laughs> Robert is too much. For which he justly deserves punishment. Right. And Kat hopes to be able to dole this out. Uh, she says that she wants to have a closer look at regulations. It's an evil institution. There was bound to be a loophole that allowed you to strangle irritating minions in the bylaws. And she's right. There is, in fact, a loophole. It's called having a name, which she does. If she strangled Robert right here, nothing would come of it. <laughs> that's that's pretty much explicitly within the the way the legions function. If you have a name, you 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 do it. You're in charge. You you win. Which is an interesting choice by Black to allow, but I suppose it doesn't happen much given the paucity of names. 
But I think I read that that there are at least indications of more names in the Preskalo area in the Yonder version. But we'll have to see when we get there. However, we don't have too much time to discuss because as soon as they get the goat up to the gate, dodging a ballista boulder that made it very clear that none of us would be getting back up if Juniper landed a shot properly, they go to the gate. The explosion is the goat of all explosions. Big boom go bang. And Catherine, knowing that Nock, whatever his part in the plan is, we'll find out next chapter, isn't with their party, instructs immediately that Killian send him a runner to start phase two immediately. The goat blew a 10-foot hole in the defenses with a noise like thunder. Nock knows. And just like Nock would know that phase one of the plan is over, we unfortunately know that this episode is over. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Rata as we discuss... A bomb. A babe. And a barter. Wade in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Rata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Rata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Relaxing by Music for Videos. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at TheLongPrice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash pgtee. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Grey, our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 28, Wind Condition. And the Kingfisher Prince. Well, I have different adjectives I'd like to use about him. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. Google of or relating to hips. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I don't think I can include this in the podcast. I've looked up of or relating to hips. Okay. With an X, it is coxal. I mean, that's a normal word, but... It is. The context is vital. Yeah... Maybe this is a post credit scene. So, hello, listeners. In light of the coming transition to Yonder, this podcast will move forward as follows. We will first finish out all of book one, as we have been, reading and discussing the original text as presented on WordPress. At that point, we will read and discuss book one of the Yonder edition at a moderate clip, focusing on the changes from the original. Following that, 
we intend to continue using the present format of one chapter per episode, moving through the version of the story to which we have access at that point. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to continuing this discussion with you.